This morning in the early morning prayer meeting, I, I usually start that time with a psalm. And uh, this morning, being the 29th of, uh, of October, I, uh, I, I read 20, Psalm 20, I mean, yeah, Psalm 29. And, and let me read you the first part and the last part of Psalm 29. Ascribe to the Lord, O sons of the mighty. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord glory to his name. Worship the Lord in holy array. And then at the very end of the psalm, David says, he says, and in his temple, everything says glory. We are the temple of God. It's not this building. It's us as the people of God. We are this temple that God is building. He's the chief cornerstone. We are the living stones of the temple that God is building. And in his temple, everything says glory. The Lord sat as king at the flood. Yes, the Lord sits as king forever. The Lord will give strength to his people. The Lord will bless his people with peace. Let's turn in our Bibles to Hosea. If you happen to be our guest this morning, <clears throat> we, are, we are doing a, a study through the minor prophets of the Old Testament. Maybe you're not familiar with the Bible, so just going to give you a little brief one-minute kind of history lesson. The Old Testament is really about this, this people group called Israel. They were the sons of a man by the name of Abraham that God chose. And he said, I'm going to use you and your descendants, and I'm going to use you to reach the world. I'm going to use you to bless the world, but I'm going to use you to reach the world as well. And uh, they were an obstinate people, and uh, at some point, God put them in this, in this land that he had chosen for them, and they rebelled against him, and eventually, the country would split into two. I mean, this people group would split into two. The northern 10 brothers, 10 tribes, I mean, they went north, and two tribes went south, and so the, the kingdom was divided between Israel in the north and Judah in, in the south. Much of your Old Testament, I'm not sure how many, there's 39 books in your Old Testament, I'm not sure how many of them are prophetic books, but a good portion of those Old Testament books were written by men that God would send to Israel to speak to them, to try to reclaim them, to, to basically challenge them, to turn back to him, and Hosea is no exception to that. There are major prophets and minor prophets. The majors are the guys who wrote long books and the minors shorter books. Although if you read the book of Hosea this week, you know it's 14 chapters. And though they're not all that long, there's a couple of them that were long. It, it, it you know, was longer than the book of Amos from last week. All right. Hosea, last week we, we talked about Amos and this week it's Hosea. And both Amos and Hosea had the distinction of basically speaking to these northern 10 tribes. Now, again, if you were here, you know all of this because we've talked about it. But those northern 10 tribes, there was no king, no leader, no godly leadership throughout the whole existence of those 10 tribes. Nobody who led in the north followed God. And so all the prophets, they, were, they would be speaking against the, the sin of those, uh, of those northern 10 tribes. Now, Hosea tells us when he prophesied, if you have your Bible, so I think it's verse 1, but it says, during the, the days of kings Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah in the south. You know, most of, the, most of the prophets will tell you when they prophesied by who was king in the south and who was king in the north. And Jeroboam II was king uh, in the north. Now, these are the same, some of the same men that Amos, uh, Amos prophesied during some of the same time, especially under Jeroboam II. And if we were to go and look at the major prophet Isaiah, these are the exact same kings that, that Isaiah prophesied uh, during their reign. And, but he prophesied in the southern kingdom of Judah why, while Hosea was up in the northern kingdom there amongst the ten. Now last week we looked at Amos and we said that Amos, pre, Amos preached to the wealthy, to the upper class of Israel. And his condemnation of them was that in their prosperity they did not care for the poor. In fact, they used their affluence not only to rob the poor of justice, but also to take advantage over them and to quote Amos, to grind their heads into the dust. Now, Hosea's message this morning is going to be very different than Amos' message. He's not going to talk about the same thing that Amos talked about. In fact, the whole book of Hosea is really directed at, at a different indictment from the Lord, and we, will, and we will see what that is. Now, like Amos, Hosea breaks down into three parts. So if you're, if you're taking notes and you want to note this down, it divides chapters 1 through 3 as a, a sort of biological uh, excuse me, a biographical sketch of Hosea's life with, with a challenge to Israel in there. 
In fact, that's going to be what we're going to focus on this morning. And then the second part of the book is chapters three to chapter, excuse me, chapter four to chapter 13. And in, in these chapters, we have Hosea's indictment of Israel over and over and over. And then we get to the last part of chapter, chapter 14. And this is God's promise of restoration in the future and some of the things that he's going to do uh, in the future. This morning, I want us to focus on the biographical part of this book. And I want to tell you that some of the prophets, not all of them, but some of them were called not just to speak, but they were called to be actors. They were called to step out onto the scene of of their contemporaries, and they were called on by God to act out certain things. This was really true of the major prophets. For instance, uh, Jeremiah was told that he had to wear an ox yoke. Around, So he wore, I don't know how long it was, but he wore this ox yoke around his neck, basically saying, that's how you guys are going to be. You know, God's going to put a a yoke on you and and Babylon's going to treat you like an ox. Isaiah had to walk around barefoot and with his, with his buttocks showing. All right. Now I looked at that because, you know, some folks, some folks said he walked around naked for a couple of years, but uh, evidently he just had to have his hiney showing. So, uh, You can go read Isaiah and what exactly God was trying to say to the people of Judah with that illustration, right? But uh, that's what uh, he did. Ezekiel had all kinds of things that he had to do as a a visual demonstration of God's message. And, you you know, as I was thinking about that this week, it's like, you know, God's the first one to use visual aids, right? I mean, he was into drama and into visual aids there in his, in his Old Testament prophetic way. Now, Hosea is a minor prophet, but Hosea is also called to act out the message of God. Now, Hosea, unlike the other three, the, the message that he is going to act out, it's going to be his entire life. And you think, well, how can that be a picture? Well, I, I think it's a picture as, as, he is, as his life is unfolding, as we'll see, as his life is unfolding, he is going to picture to the people of the northern tribes. He's going to picture them, and he's going to picture God into the way he lives his life. So let's pick up the chapter, chapter 1 of Hosea, verse 2. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, "Take, go take to yourself a wife of prostitution and have children of prostitution, for the land commits great prostitution by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblium, and she conceived and bore him a son. Now, Hosea is a young prophet. He's just starting out, and God says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go and marry a prostitute. Now, this has been troubling to a lot of folks. In my studies this week, there's basically four ways of understanding what we just read. Some people say it's allegorical, that that, you know, this is just a made-up story that's an allegory to, to illustrate the message of Hosea. Uh, others say, no, it's a literal story. Gomer was real, but the prostitution wasn't real prostitution. The, the prostitution was spiritual prostitution. She was, she was a Baal worshiper, and so she was prostituting herself spiritually. Still others say that, no, this is a real, she was a real prostitute, and this is what really God asked Hosea to do. And then the fourth view, which is becoming very popular today, is that Hosea wrote uh, proleptically, that's a big word. I had to look it up what it means. And what that means simply is that Hosea is writing in the future now. He's writing back as if he's in the past, knowing what he knows now. He didn't know it then. And so he's writing proleptically. And so he's, he's saying what is in the future, but he didn't really know it at this time. I mean, that's the writing style. And some people are embracing, embracing that idea. And they, they point to the fact that he, he's told to marry a, a prostitute and have children of prostitution, right? So how would he ever know that to start with? And, and so, so folks are saying he's, he's writing in, in that sort of way. My, my study this week has led me to say this to you this morning, that this is a question that no one will ever answer for sure. And people fall on, on all four of those perspectives. As for me, I really believe that God asked Hosea to marry a woman of, of prostitution. Now, one of the things that we need to realize, a couple of things we need to realize, one of them is that we're not, we're not talking about a streetwalker. Although some people, some people have suggested that's the kind of prostitute she was. I, I don't believe so. I, I believe that most likely Gomer would have been what they call... Um, 
a religious prostitute. She would have worked in the temples of Baal uh, in prostitution in that way. In fact, I really think if you consider what we're going to say as we go along, that what I'm sharing with you really seems to fit better, that she was a prostitute in the temple of Baal. And so in the cultic worship of that day, sexual intercourse between the worshipers and the prostitutes in the temple, that was a common way of worship. That was part of the, the Baal worship of that day. And so I believe that when God told Hosea to go and marry a woman of prostitution, that's what he's asking her to do. Now, here's the second thing that I want you to remember is that people in this day, and I'm not saying there wasn't romance. I'm not saying that people didn't fall in emotional love with people. But what I am saying to you is that most likely people did not marry for an emotional romantic love. Most people did not marry that way. In fact, even in our own day, a few, a few weeks ago, when we had the brother from the two brother and sister from India, you know, they were from an arranged marriage. And so a lot of marriages were that way. And, and so, you know, there's, this is not an emotional, romantic marriage between Hosea and Gomer. This is Hosea making a choice to marry a woman and, and, and bring to her life dignity. And, bring, and rescue her out of that life of temple prostitution and give her respectability amongst, uh, amongst the people of Israel. And I believe that's what he was doing. So they get married, and uh, we find out in verse 3 that she conceives him a son. Verse 4, And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Now, God, God tells evidently Hosea what to name his first son. Uh, he bears, she bears him a son named Jezreel. Jezreel is a city in Israel. Jezreel is the city where Ahab and, uh, and Jezebel were killed by Jehu. Jehu was, he became king after Ahab. If you'll remember your, I know no, some of you may not know this at all, so just bear with me. But in, in Israel's history, you remember there was no good king in the north. And one king who was exceptionally bad was a fellow by the name of Ahab. And his wife Jezebel was extremely bad. They killed all the prophets of God. Um, I mean, it was just a really rough time. And so when God judges Ahab and Jezebel, he uses a fellow by the name of Jehu. And he says, Jehu, I want you to go in and, and you're going to be my judgment on the house of Ahab. Now, when Jehu went in there, Jehu was just bloodthirsty, and he not only killed the house of Ahab at God's instruction, but he killed everybody. He killed all kinds of innocent people, and God pronounced a judgment on Jehu. He said, listen, I, you know, I'm going to judge your family. I'm going to remove you from, I'm going to remove you in the future. Your family will not continue to rule in Israel, and I'm going to judge you. What what God says to, to Hosea is, name your son Jezreel because the time of that judgment has come. And Jeroboam II is the fourth generation from Jehu. He was, so Jehu was Jeroboam II's great, great, great grandfather. Everybody following me? And so God says, you call him Jezreel because I'm about to do what I said I was going to do years ago. And the house of Jehu is about to be destroyed. And furthermore, I am going to put an end to the kingdom of Israel. It's going to end. And I'm going to break their bow. He's talking about I'm going to break the strength of, of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. So it's sort of like a prophetic thing. And again, here God is using, he's using Hosea and Gomer's first son Jezreel as a living testimony, as a, as a part of this play that Hosea is living out in front of the people. Now, uh, we continue on, verse 6. Gomer has a second child. This time it's a girl. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, call her name Loruhama, which literally means no mercy. In fact, depending on what translation you're following me in, uh, your Bible may not even say Loruhama. It may just say no mercy because that's what Loruhama in the Hebrew means in English, no mercy. Call her name no mercy. And he goes on, for I will have no mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all, but I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God, and I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. So Hosea has this second child, a girl, and he names her No Mercy. And as he walks through the streets, he's evidently telling everybody, listen, God called me to name her no mercy because God is not going to have mercy on us, but he is going to have mercy on Judah. And he's going to spare Judah, but he's not going to do it by manpower. He's going to do it himself. 
Now, if we were to turn in our Bibles to 2 Kings 19, a historical book, verse 35, let me just read you. It says, that night, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. When the people got up in the next morning, they were all dead bodies. So King Zennacherib of Assyria broke camp, left, and returned home and lived in Nineveh. So here's what happens. Zennacherib brings his army down. He breaks the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel, defeats them, exiles them, destroys them. Then he moves south to deal with Judah. When he gets to Judah, God, by by his own power, destroys that army and they return home. And not a single Judean soldier has to fight. God does it. So this thing that God prophesied through Hosea comes to pass. Verse 8, we have their third child being born. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, call his name Loami. And Loami means literally not my people. For you are not my people and I am not your God. So the third child that Hosea has is a boy. His name is Loami, not my people. And so when Hosea took his little son through the market and began to tell everybody his name, and again, his son was a part of this picture that God is painting, this, this, this play that God is enacting. He's saying, my son's name is not my people because you are not my people and I am not your God. And so Hosea, you know, how long he does this, how long he's prophesying. Remember, this is his life. This stage is his life. All right. Now, These people that he's speaking to were Jewish born. I mean, they were sons and daughters of Abraham. And God says to them, you are not my people. Now, here's something I want you to get. I'm just going to comment on this. And and I think I'm going to to elaborate a little bit next week on this. But the, the true people of God, listen to what I'm going to say, have never been, never been merely the people of Jewish physical descent. Israel has been God's chosen nation, but the people of God within the chosen nation of Israel have never been, just because you have Jewish blood running through your veins, you are not the people of God. The people of God, whether Jewish or Gentile, have been the men and women who have had faith in Yahweh, who have had faith in God. Not merely born Jewish, but they've had faith. There's a big difference between that. And God says to them on this day, lo ami, you are not my people. You are not my people, and I am not your God. Now, what happens in Hosea and Gomer's life uh, as, as, as time unfolds? Well, you know, there really, it doesn't tell us. In fact, we're not going to go back to, to Gomer and Hosea till the third chapter, and we'll come to that in just a few moments. But chapter 2 is sandwiched in between there. Between chapters 1 and chapter 3 is chapter 2. Now, chapter 2 isn't about Hosea and Gomer. It's about Israel and God. And now, most, most people believe, and, and I, I tend to agree, that what we have in chapter 2 is it's a, it's a, an indictment of Israel from their God, but it's also, underneath it all, is, is what's happening to Gomer and to Hosea. Most people think that, in fact, the, the, the rich, vivid description of Israel's prostitution that, that Hosea is going to use, that really it's coming out of the backdrop of what Hosea in his, has experienced in, uh, in his marriage. In chapter 3, Hosea's marriage is in shambles, as we'll see, okay? Uh, God's marriage to Israel, because he's going to paint himself that way as being married to Israel. His marriage to Israel is also uh, in shambles. And in chapter 2, we have a picture of Israel's infidelity and God's desire to reconcile. Now, what I'm going to do right now is I saved it to now, but I want to read chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, I'm going to be reading from the New American Standard, but I'm going to read chapter 2, its entirety. Now, please remember this as I'm reading, just so you kind of in your mind can follow along. Chapter 1, Hosea and Gomer are a picture to the people of Israel. Chapter 3, we're going to go back to dealing with their marriage and something that God tells Hosea to do in that chapter, all right? And if you've read it, you know, you already know. But chapter 2 is this, this word from God to the people of Israel But I want you to just imagine, or just as you're listening, think of of how this may reflect some of the things happening between Hosea and Gomer. We'll begin reading chapter 2, verse 2. Contend with your mother. 
Contend, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. And let her put away her harlotry from her face, and her her adultery from between her breasts. Or I will strip her naked, and expose her as on the day when she was born. I will also make her like a wilderness, make her like desert land, and slay her with thirst. Also, I will have no compassion on her children, because they are children of harlotry. For their mother has played the harlot. She who conceived them has acted shamefully, for she said, I will go after my lovers who give me bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Therefore, behold, I will hedge up her way with thorns, and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She will pursue her lovers, but she will not overtake them. She will seek them, but will not find them. Then she will say, I'll go back to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. For she does not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the new wine and the oil, and lavished on her silver and gold, which they or she used for bail. Therefore, I will take back my grain at harvest time and my new wine in its season. And I will take away my wool and my flax given to cover her nakedness. And then I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers. No one will rescue her out of my hand. I will also put an end to all her gaiety, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, all her festal assemblies. I will destroy her vines and fig trees of which she said, these are my wages, which my lovers have given me. And I will make them a forest and the beast of the fields will devour them. I will punish her for her days of the Baals, Baal being the false gods or the false god. And when she, used to, when she used to offer sacrifices to them and adorn herself with her earrings and jewelry and follow her lovers so that she forgot me, declares the Lord. Now there's a change in verse 14. And this is God's heart now. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak kindly to her. And then I will give her vineyards from there in the valley of Achor as a door of hope. And she will sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the days when she came up from the land of Egypt. It will come about in that day, declares the Lord, that you will call me Ishi, which means husband, and no longer call me Baal or Bailey, which means master. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth so that they will be mentioned by names no more, by their names no more. And that day I will also make a covenant with them with the beast of the field, the birds of the sky, and the creeping things of the ground. I will abolish the bow and the sword and war from the land, and I will make them lie down in safety. I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and loving kindness and compassion. And I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. And then you will know the Lord. And it will come about in that day that I will respond, declares the Lord. I will respond to the heavens and they will respond to the earth. And the earth will respond to the grain and the new wine and the new oil. And they will respond to Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the land. And I will also have compassion on her who had not obtained compassion. In other words, there's a play on those words. Remember Lohrohama? I'm not saying it right. No compassion. He says, I'm going to have mercy on her who had no compassion. And I will say to those who were not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. Chapter 2 divides itself into two parts. The infidelity of Israel begins. The infidelity of Israel, here's what we see. We see that they have exchanged the God who loved them. They have exchanged the God who saved them out of, Israel, out of Egypt, who brought them into the land. They have exchanged him for the God's little g of the land. They have exchanged him for the Baals of the land. And so in verse 8, for instance, Hosea says, God gave Israel gold and silver, and you made, and you made it, and you turned and made it for the Baals. And what he means by that is you took the gold and silver that I gave you, and you made idols out of it. Other references to uh, the canine religion may be a little bit more subtle, maybe not quite as clear, but he says, take away the harlotry from, uh, from your face and the adultery from between your breast. And most scholars believe that the harlotry and adultery objects that he's talking about here are things they wore on their head as part of the Baal worship and things they wore necklaces around their, around their neck. These are the kind of things that the women did in cultic prostitution. And so he's saying, you have, you have taken and you have prostituted yourself with these gods, uh, with these gods of the land. In verse 13, he talks about, let's go back, let me read it to you. Verse, uh, in verse 13, he says, 
I will punish her for the days of Baals when she used, uh, she used to offer sacrifices to them, adorning herself with earrings and jewelry, and follow her lovers so that she forgot me, declares the Lord. Most folks see that as the procession of, of Baal worship. They would worship by lining up and following each other into the Baal temples, following some idol that was up in front of them. And so when God says, hey, you, you, they followed their lovers, he was talking about how the, the Israelites would, would worship at the Baal temple following these idols that would be carried in into the Baal temple. Israel's uh, infidelity is seen in a lot of ways, but, but the worst part of it is in verse 13. And you may not catch it, and, and I only caught it because I was taught it, and this, and this is it, that in the Hebrew language, the, the way you bring emphasis to something is putting it first in a sentence. And in this sentence in verse 13 where it says, she has forgot me, here's the biggest sin of Israel. They have forgotten the Lord. If you want to highlight something, God is highlighting that. They have forgot me. And they have embraced all these false gods of the land. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 12, they've come out of the land of Egypt and God said to them, take care lest you forget the Lord, lest you forget me who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. And so Hosea is indicating that they have forgotten the Lord and they are following after the Baals, the false gods of the land. Now, God didn't leave them without hope. In chapters, in verses 8 through 9, 6 and 7, we see the Lord doing things, trying to bring them back, you know, hedging them in, causing what they're doing to not flourish, making their sinful practices lead to futility, all of that trying to bring them back, but, but they don't, but they don't come back, they don't listen. And then in verse 3, God says, if she does not return, I will divorce her. And he says, I will strip her naked like the day she was born. You know, by the time we get to Jesus' day, a woman, when, when a man would divorce a woman, he would not strip her. He would make her just leave with the clothes that were on her back. We have a parable in the New Testament about that. You know what it is? The woman with the 10 coins. You know why she has 10 coins on her? In case her husband divorces her, she has some money when she leaves. That was, that's the backdrop behind that. You go to the Old Testament, though, a husband could literally strip his wife naked and make her leave without even the clothes on her back. And this is what God says, I will strip you naked like in the day that you were born. Now, fortunately for them and fortunately for us, Hosea, God's, God's word to Israel doesn't end there. So in verse 14, it's like a hinge verse and something changes. And God says, but I'm going to, I'm going to seek to allure my wife back. I'm going to seek to win her back. He talks about going into the desert and talking to her in the wilderness. And that's reminiscent of when God brought them out of the land of Egypt and they were in the wilderness and, and all of Israel was like, yeah, God, we love you and we're going to follow you. It, it reminisces all the way back to the, Mount, to the covenant at Sinai when God said, I'm going to be your God. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to provide for you. All I ask is that you love me. All I ask is that you follow me, that you have faith in me, that you trust me. And yet the people of Israel didn't do that. And they would prostitute themselves with the gods of the land. Now, you know, we're going to talk more about this next week. But you, you have to notice, if you didn't, that the promises that God makes to Israel here are, they're more far-reaching than just these ten tribes. And the reason I say that is because the ten tribes never get to come back. The ten tribes never get to come back. Now, Judah will get to come back, but the ten tribes, when they're, when they're dispersed and, and God destroys them, they do not come back. But notice the things that God says that in his promises to love them, the things that he's going to do to them or for them when they return in faith. Now, please catch this because I believe these are things that apply to, to us. He says, first of all, he says, I'm going to remove the names of the Baal gods from their vocabulary in verses 16 and 17. In other words, God's going to so restore the relationship with people who have abandoned him and rejected him and are chasing after other gods. He's going to so restore them, boy, that their loyalty is going to be so changed that all the names of those gods that they once had will be lost to them. And only one name, only one name will matter to them. And that's the name of their God. The second thing he says, I'll make a covenant with them and I'm going to return creation to its pre-fall harmony, verse 18. 
On that day, I'll make a covenant of them with the wild animals and the birds of the sky and the creatures and the crawl on the ground. And I will shatter bows, sword, weapons of war in the land and will enable the people to rest securely. In verse 21 and 22, he says, the earth will respond to the grain, to the new wine and to the oil. In other words, then he goes on and says, and we will call that place Jezreel. And Jezreel, remember a few moments ago when God names Hosea's first child Jezreel, it's negative. Hey, it's about the city and it's about Jehu. Jezreel literally means God sows. He says, you're going to call this place God sowing because God's going to provide for you all the new wine and all the grain. In other words, that God is going to restore everything that was lost in creation. No more war, no more fighting. He talks about, you know, how the animals, the birds of the sky, the creatures that crawl, everything is going to be reconciled to God. The third thing he says is he will make their relationship a forever marriage. I love this one. In which his people will know him intimately. Verse 19. I will take you to be my wife forever. I will take you to be my wife in righteousness, justice, love, and compassion. In other words, you'll always be my wife forever. It'll never change. It cannot be lost. You will be mine forever. And then the fourth thing he says to them is he talks about the day he's coming when he's going to, he's going to, what he's going to do for his people who come by faith, who return to him from amongst those and throughout the generations, I believe. Fourth, he says, he'll reverse the symbolic meaning of the names of Gomer's children. And he will say, no longer will I call you no pity because I'm going to have compassion on you. And you're going to belong to me. Not only that, not only am I going to, I'm not going to call you not my kin. I'm not going to call you not my people because you will be my people. You're going to be my family. He says, I'm going to reverse the meaning of your names. And thus, in this section of the book of Hosea, it proclaims this overwhelming truth that God desires, God desires for us to return to him. He desired for them. He didn't desire their destruction. He didn't desire to destroy Israel. He desired for them to return in faith to him. Can I tell you, that's what God desires for us today, for us to return to him in faith or turn to him in faith. Now let's go on to the reconciliation of Hosea and Gomer. I told you that the, the, their relationship sort of ends in verse 9 of chapter 1, but really the last part of that of chapter 1 isn't even really about them. I mean, it's about their children and the meaning of their children's names as they apply to Israel, right? So it's really not even about them. So what happened in their relationship? Well, we don't know. If chapter 2 really is kind of an underlying indicator of what may have happened to them, you know when he names that third child uh, Loami, you know, not my, not my kin, not my people? I mean, that could be an indicator. God, you know, God's, remember God's setting up Hosea and Gomer as a visual aid, a picture between him and his relationship with Israel. It could be that his last two children, uh, Loruhama and Loami, were, were not even Hosea's sons, son and daughter. A lot of scholars think that's probably what's implied there, because if you notice, he conceived the first one. It says that it doesn't say who conceived the second and third one. It just says that she conceived and bore a child. So, you know, it may not even be him. Evidently, though, here's what happened evidently. Gomer returns to her promiscuity, evidently returns to her temple worship and to, and to the prostitution that had once been a part of her life. And she, you know, some people suggested that Hosea kicks her out of the house. I don't think so. I think Gomer left. Gomer left. And she ran after, she pursued her lovers in the same way that Israel had pursued spiritually her lovers, the Baals, not God himself. And, and so if there is a corollary between what happened in Hosea's life and what's happening in Israel, then Gomer left and what happened to Gomer, we don't know. But at some point, you remember in, the, in, the, in chapter 2, it talks about how the lovers will turn against Israel. At some point, evidently, her lovers turn against her. And when we find her in chapter 3, we find Gomer on a slave block. And she's being sold. And chances are, the reason she's on the slave block is because she, uh, she probably sold herself in as a slave to, to provide for her means. She sold herself as a slave, and she's on the slave block. And that's where we find her in chapter 3, and we start chapter 3, verse 1. Notice this. Go, go again, God says to Hosea. Show love to a woman who is loved by another man as, and is an adulteress, just as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods 
and love raisin cakes. God says to Hosea, Hosea, I want you... Now remember, the first thing he says, go take for yourself a wife from prostitution. Now he's saying, go and love a wife who's been an adulteress, who's been unfaithful. And uh, he says, just like Israel has been unfaithful to me and love the raisin cakes, the raisin cakes evidently had something to do with Baal worship. But he says, go and, and, and love her again. Go and choose her again. Keep loving her in spite of herself. And by doing that, God is trying to say to the Israelites, he's trying to say to you and me this morning is that he doesn't want to give up on us. He wants to redeem us. He wants to bring us back. Okay. And, and, and so if, if Hosea can do this, if God is willing to do that, that's the picture. So what does Hosea do? Verse, Hosea do? Verse two. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and five bushels of barley. Just a, just a heads up, an, an FYI, you know, the price of, of slaves back then was evidently 30 shekels. He didn't have it. So evidently he barters with 15 shekels and barley, and he buys his, his, buys his wife back from uh, the slave block. In verse 3, he says to her, now, I want you to stay. I, I, I'm bringing you back into my house. Here's what I'm asking you. I'm asking you to uh, not be with any other man to keep yourself pure, and, and I'm going to do the same for many days, for an indiscriminate amount of time. And here's what I think he's saying to Gomer. He's saying, Gomer, I brought you back, but I cannot force this relationship on you. I, I, have, I have purchased your freedom, but you're, really, it's up to you. You're, you're going to have to make a decision of whether you're going to love me or not, whether you're going to, whether you're going to be my wife or not. I, I cannot make you do that. What did Gomer do? Man, don't you wish, like every other love story, this would turn out good. She'd be broken, repentant, and they would live happily ever after in their marriage. Well, actually, we do not know what happens. We do not know if Gomer chose right, if she chose wrong. You know, we just, we don't know what happened. And, and chapter three ends just like this. I'd really like to hope that, uh, that there was something good. Verse 4 of chapter 3, God says, that's how it is with Israel. You know, you guys are going to live without your lovers. You, you, need, you, you guys are going to, I'm going to take everything away from you. And then he says, there's coming a day where people will come back to him. And Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they will come trembling to the Lord and do his blessing in the last day. Well, let me, let me end this morning. Let me end this morning by just giving you some lessons from the lives of Hosea and Gomer. Just real quickly. Now, one thing I want you to keep in mind is that in this picture, Hosea is God. And Gomer is Israel, but Gomer is us, okay? And Hosea is God. And here's the pictures that, that I think God wanted to paint for the Israelites and for us today. Number one, God's love for us isn't based on how lovely we are. God's love for us isn't based on, on our virtue, on how wonderful we are. In fact, we're just like Israel, and we, we have abandoned the Lord. God doesn't love you because you're wonderful. God doesn't love you because, you know, you're, you're something great. And in fact, Jamie, I think, read the verse, but in Romans, he loves us while we're yet enemies. He loves, he loves us while we're in rebellion against him, while we're anything but pretty, right? So here's God's point. I, I want you to know I love you when you're unlovely. I love you when, you're, when you don't have it all together, okay? How freeing is that to know that I don't have to have it all together for God to love me? That he, that he chooses to love me when, when I'm just, it can be such a jerk, can be really, you know, really off. He loves me, you know? That's, that's the message of Hosea. God is love. And I wrote down in the words of the Geico commercial, it's what he does. He's love. Here's the second thing. God's love for us is extremely patient. And just like Amos, you know, Hosea said time and time again, I, I have been patient with you. I tried to call you back. I worked in your life, drawing you to myself. You remember, we already talked about it. Right in the middle of, of verses like six through nine, God says, I did this, I did this, I did this, trying to get your attention, trying to get you to see that it's really me who's providing all these things for you, not the false gods that you're following. And yet you couldn't see it. And yet God is patient. He's patient with them. He's patient with us. He's patient with you. 
He's long-suffering. He's long-suffering, wanting you to come to him. When people scoffed at Jesus' return, do you all remember what Peter said? I don't know how many decades had gone by since Jesus had left and they'd been promising his return. And Peter said, God is not slow in his return. The reason why God hasn't returned is because he's patient, wanting you to come to him. God's, God's patience is an indicator of his love. I wonder, how long has God been patient with you? Number three, God's love for us is that of a husband. I tell you, you find this analogy throughout the Bible, but it's really, really clear in the book of Hosea. God chooses to make himself like our husband. And in the husband's responsibility to provide, to protect, he longs for intimacy in this marriage with us. You know, I know that not all your marriages are good. Some of you had some really rough marriages, maybe not, maybe not a good marriage, but I'm going to tell you something, that's not how God intended it. God intended marriage to be a place where, where intimacy takes place, where there's caring, where there's, you know, I'm known and I know my spouse in that marriage. That's what God desired and desires in marriage. And he says to us, he says, that's the kind of relationship I want with you. I am like your husband. You are like my wife. In fact, we find that analogy in the New Testament. We are the bride of Christ. He is our husband. Number four, God's love is merciful and forgiving and restorative. In verse 19, when God's talking about all the things he's going to do, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice, in steadfast love and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. I'm going to marry you forever. God's, God's mercy is and God's, God's forgiveness is restorative. He wants to bring us into his family forever and ever. He's quick to forgive. He's merciful. That's who our God is. He wants to make you not a vessel of his wrath. And he will. Apart from Christ, you are a vessel of wrath. But he wants to make you a vessel of honor, a vessel of mercy, a vessel of life. As far as the east is from the west, the Bible says, so God has removed our sin from us. The next one, I think it was number five. And this is my last one. God's love is terminus. I wasn't sure what your word to use here. I, you know, I had to search for a word because God's love is, is unconditional. And I don't want to do anything that would take away from the fact that somehow or another you have to marry you, you, this whole idea that God loves you just as you are and wants you to come to him just as you are because he'll, he'll fix all the stuff. But he wants you to come to him and love him. Okay. So I sought for a word, and this is the word I came up with, terminus, because there, there is a termination and a final stop to God's love. Though God's love is patient and unconditional and forgiving and merciful, the Bible says there comes a point where his justice will take over. Unless we have been forgiven in Christ, we will die in our sin, and we will be cut off from God, and we will be destroyed. Israel in the north, in spite of God's love, would be destroyed and they would never come back. They would never return. You can run past the end of God's love. And that's what, he, that's what Hosea is trying to say to the people of Israel. You, are in, you have run past it. Come back. Run back. All right, I'm going to close with two conclusions, two applications for us. First, of us. first, to those of us who are already followers of Jesus, we've put our faith in Christ. We say we belong to him. Here's my application for us. You find it in chapter uh, 1 of verse 3. The Lord said to me, go show your love to your mother again. Though she's loved by another, she's an adulteress. But love her as the Lord loves the Israelites. And then again in verse 3, he says, you, your love, he says, you are to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or intimate with any other man. So I will live with you. Here's what, here's what Hosea is saying to them and God is saying to us, look, I've redeemed you. I bought you. You belong to me. I, I rescued you and, and, I am, and I have re-rescued you. He says, now here's what I ask. I ask that you love me and be faithful to me. I want you to be faithful to me. God is patient, everyone. God is patient. God is merciful. God's love is like a husband for a wife. But God longs for you and me to love him back. God longs for us to care for him as he cares for us to be faithful to him. Now, don't misunderstand the point. 
God, God, God doesn't love you because of what you do. God doesn't love you because somehow you merit his love. God loves you unconditionally. But when God brought, when Hosea brought Gomer back into the house, he's saying to her, listen, I want you to love me. Hosea chose to love her because he loved her. God chooses to love you because of who, not because of who you are, or what you do, or, or what you are. He loves you because he loves you. And that's amazing, isn't it? But, but God, is, God is longing for us to love him back. Now listen, now some people say that kind of, make, that kind of takes away from God's bigness that, that he would put himself subject to our love. But I'm telling you, what else is love? Is there anything else love that is not somehow, if, if, if God makes us love him, is that love? And I think not. And so what he's saying here is, you know, I love you and I want you and I want, but I want you to love me and I want you to follow me. He expects his wife not to scorn him, not to scorn his love and not to prostitute himself or herself with all the other gods that are in this world. Here's the, here's the word. Listen to me carefully because this, I'm speaking to most of you now. I got another application is coming in just a second, but listen to what I'm saying. God is saying to you and me that follow him, God doesn't want us to prostitute ourselves with all the other bales in this world. And you say, well, what, what, what are those gods that we can prostitute ourselves with? I mean, they're money and possession and, and my relationships and work and whatever else is bailed to you. God says, God says, look it, I don't want you to forget me and chase after all those other gods. I want you to love me and follow me. The message of Hosea for us today, maybe we're not like the Israelites. Maybe we're not whoring it after, after these other gods. But I'll tell you what, it's really easy for us to forget the Lord and to begin to make something else a bail in our life. So let me ask you, those of you that are married to Christ, are you prostituting yourself with any other God? Are you? Are you an adulterer? or an adulteress when it comes to your relationship with God? Is something, else, is something else above your relationship with God? Is somebody, something, some, some place above your relationship with God? Then like Israel, God is saying, come back. Don't forget me. Oh, I, I just, anyway, let's move on. The last thing. And here's, here's my second application of, of Hosea's biographical section. And it's this, for those of you that have yet to come to know Christ by faith, I, I want to invite you this morning to this lover of your soul. And you might say, well, hey, he doesn't love me. I feel totally disconnected from God. I don't know where God is. Where is God? I can't see God. I don't know God. Here's the answer from the book of Hosea. You know, if you don't know where God is, it's not God who's lost. It's you. And I mean, I don't mean any disrespect. It's, it's not God who has somehow lost, it's you. And God has continually been trying to woo you and call you and draw you to himself. Listen, you're the prostitute in, in, the, in the Baal worship. You're in the wrong temple, worshiping the wrong God, the wrong way. And just like Hosea went in there and rescued Gomer, so God has, has he's been coming trying to rescue you. He's been trying to marry you for you to come and be a part of his family. Here's the truth. You have been pursued by God to the point that God would lay down his life for you on a cross and then raise it back up again that you might have eternal life, that you might belong to him, that you might be married to him forever and ever and ever, and all the blessings of a redeemed world would be yours. He's been pursuing you since he came, into the, came onto the planet. Even before that, he's been pursuing you and wanting you to come to him. I read this kind of illustrated story this week that's kind of neat, and uh, I'm assuming it's a true story. It was, it was told as a true story, but a young man from Chicago, a young businessman, was down in Kentucky, and uh, down there in the bluegrass state, and he found this young lady that he fell in love with, and he wooed her, and he won her, and he married her, and he carried, carried her back up to Chicago, and he loved her dearly. And, uh, and one day, though, she had a seizure, and when she came out of the seizure, she was demented. I mean, her mind wasn't right. Uh, she had all these times of screaming at her best, at her best moments. She was um, not screaming, but obviously just not there. 
And he did everything he could medically. He actually moved out into the suburbs to get away from the city because they thought that might help. Nothing helped. One day the doctor said to him, he said, son, you ought to take her back down to where she's from and see if some of those things, you know, walking through where she grew up, that might, that might help. That might help. And so he takes her, takes her home. And for a few days, they're walking through the homestead, the town she grew up, all that kind of stuff. Nothing seems to change, though. So he puts her in the car, and they're heading home. But for the first time in quite some time, he notices that she fell into this really deep sleep. So much so that when they got home, he really couldn't waken her. So he picks her up, puts her in bed. She sleeps all through the night, and he sits by her bed all night long. And in the morning, she wakes up. And when she wakes up, her mind is right. And she says to her husband, she said, I feel like I've been on a, on a long trip. Where have you been? And he said to her, and these were his words, he said, my sweetheart, I've been right here waiting for you all this time. Now that story is so illustrative of where you are with God. You might think that God is somewhere far, far away, but God's right there. And he's been there all along. Waiting, drawing, wooing, caring for you, wanting you to be in his family. And right now, right now, this is, this is a plea. I'm pleading with you this morning. The God, the God of Hosea, the God of Israel, the God who is, he is right here this morning speaking to you and waiting for you to respond to his love, waiting for you to trust his promise, waiting for you to cast yourself with reckless abandon, you know, into, into his grace and into his love. But now it's, it's up to you. And you can continue, we can continue prostituting ourselves, or we can, we can run back to the one who loves us. So let's bow our heads. I'm praying that God would speak to our hearts. So here's, here's the thing this morning. If you or like Israel, somebody who belongs to God, but yet you have, you know, chosen to, to love some other God, to put something else in front of him, to worship at the altar of whatever it might be. And I think you know a lot of those false gods of this world. Then the invitation from God is, come back home, come back to me. Come live in my house. And, and don't have any other lovers but me. God's inviting you to return. And if you're out there this morning, this invitation is for you. And then this invitation is for those of you that have yet to come to trust Christ. And you know, you know, you're, you're, you know you're, in a, you're in the wrong temple in the wrong place and God is wooing and God is calling and God is drawing. Then, then today is a day for you to respond to this gracious and good and kind and patient God. Father, thank you for the wonderful cross that bore our sins and frees us, Lord, from uh, all of our unrighteousness, that gives us the promise of eternal life with you, a resurrection into a day, Lord, where you are going to make all things new, restore creation. Uh, Lord, how we look forward to that day. Father, in the meantime, I pray for us as your people that we would live for you, that we would love you like you desire for us to love you, that we would love you like, uh, like a husband and wife love each other. Lord, we know you love us like that. Help us to love you back in the same way. We pray this prayer today in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening. This message has been brought to you by Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. And if you'd like to learn more about our church, please visit us on the web at www.baconscastle.com.